second Sunday in this hour uh, where I respond to questions that you have submitted to me. And uh, this is something where I have prepared an answer and I'm going to go through the answer. And uh, it is not really a back and forth. So um, if you have other questions or other comments or things about that, please save them until the end and maybe we'll have them for another Q&A later on. Uh, as I mentioned a couple of months ago, uh, I have uh, done the math and kind of looked at my list of, of Q&A questions, and there are a lot that I haven't gotten to, so I'm trying to get through seven this morning. So I, we'll just see how that goes. I don't know if we're going to actually make it through seven, but if we do seven this morning, I think we have another seven next month, and uh, that would finish off the list, assuming you guys don't give me more between now and then. I might not accept them if you do, but uh, anyway, so that's our plan. So what I'm saying about that is I'm going to be moving a little faster than normal. I would encourage you, a lot of these questions have a depth to them that I can't get into this morning. There are other passages to study, other things to look through in a closer detail. I'm going to try to give you the survey and my conclusions, but if you would be interested in studying more, you can reach out to me, or you can just take notes and say, let's look at that deeper later. You'll see some of the areas I'm talking about as we go along. All right, the first question is, uh, what does the term son of man mean? That's really centered on the idea that Jesus, one of Jesus' favorite names for himself, is Son of Man. And that's an odd expression. We don't use that term. And so the question is, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, actually, before Jesus uses it, it has a lot of uses and meanings in the Old Testament. It is a common expression in the Old Testament. Usually, it means something close to a human, a person. Uh, so this is Numbers 23 and verse 19. Uh, this is actually Balaam. We'll talk about more, him more in a minute. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So you hear the Hebrew parallelism there. He's not a man. He's not a son of man, meaning they're the same thing. Uh, and then Job, uh, behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Not really a high view of man there, but you get the idea man and son of man are interchangeable. Uh, David says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? So you have son of man just as an expression for people in sort of the way that if a man has a son, that son is also going to be a man, like begets like. Uh, it's also a special name, son of man, for Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel. Maybe that's a reference to Ezekiel's humanity, uh, but... The real significant part of Son of Man, in addition to the just being a human idea, is here in Daniel 7 and verse 13. So in Daniel 7 and verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So here, there is a messianic figure that is referred to as the Son of Man. Now, it could be that this is just the human one or a, a human, but this one seems to have special importance because the Ancient of Days, who is God, is giving him authority, a throne, and so he becomes sort of a messianic figure. There is some evidence in between the Testaments that the Son of Man was a, a messianic figure among the popular imagination. So, if that's the case, Jesus is not just saying when he calls himself Son of Man... I'm a man, he is also saying, I'm kind of maybe that figure from Daniel 7. And I think Jesus draws on both of those. So when Jesus says, I am the son of man, he is saying, I am a human just like you, I'm, a, I'm just a person. Uh, some translations, when Jesus says son of man, they'll say, he means human one. I think that's a pretty loose translation, but you get the idea, that's what he's trying to say. Um, but I would also say, that this term emphasizes Jesus' special messianic role. 
in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is given authority and power. And so when Jesus sometimes will refer to authority and power that has to do with the Son of Man, he might be alluding back to Daniel 7. He says, but you, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is in the story with the paralytic. Or, uh, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Those are authority statements, but they're connected with Son of Man. He's not just saying every human has this. He's saying, I have this in a special way. I have authority. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And there is one more passage before we leave the question. Uh, this is Mark 14, where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin and being tried. And it says, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So you have the right hand of power. We're kind of back in Daniel 7. Okay, the, the authority, the ancient of days. And then you also have coming with the clouds of heaven, which is what he says there in Daniel 7, 13. Uh, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. Jesus is saying more than I'm a human in this text. He is saying what's happening in Daniel 7 is happening now and you're going to see it in some way. So my point then is Son of Man for Jesus means both the human side and something about him being the Messiah. Second question, can we pray to Jesus? Let's go to John chapter 14. Is it acceptable, this question asks, to offer prayer to Jesus uh, instead of or in addition to uh, the Father? John 14. This is a question that uh, is really hard to answer head on uh, because what you have instead of a clear teaching statement is sort of examples and uh, references that you could take in different ways. And I want to show you some of those. John 14 and verse 13, Jesus says... Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Some versions, by the way, do not have in verse 14, if you ask me anything, they just have if you ask anything, which might change the meaning where we're talking about do we ask God in Jesus' name or do we ask Jesus himself. But the point here, in both verse 13 and 14, he says, I will do it. Jesus says, I'm the one who is going to do what you're asking either the Father or me to do. So whatever prayer you're offering, you can count on me to fulfill it. So there are a couple of examples in the New Testament of people praying to Jesus. This is uh, Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 12 where he talks about the thorn in the flesh. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord, in this text, and usually when Paul refers to the Lord, he's referring to Jesus. So in this text, though, it's clear because Jesus' response is, my power is perfect in weakness. And so then he talks about the power of Christ. He's saying, I asked Jesus to take this away three times, and Jesus said no. And so, you know, he says, I've come to accept that, and then even to celebrate my weakness because then the power of Christ is on me. Uh, you have Stephen, uh, Luke, Acts 7, verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So you have specific statements where he's addressing Jesus and calling him Lord, Lord Jesus, and asking him to do something. Receive my spirit. Don't hold this sin against them. Sometimes in the New Testament, in addition to those two examples of praying to Jesus, you have sort of uh, statement prayers. 
especially in the epistles. Paul will do things like this. This is 2 Thessalonians 2. You can see I'm trying to move fast and there's a lot of references. So hope you don't, you know, if, you, if you're curious about it, just take some notes and look at them later when you have a little more time. Uh, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So may our Lord Jesus Christ is a, is a kind of prayer. May God do this for you. So may Jesus and may the Father uh, comfort your hearts and establish them. Or may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. So you get the idea. Uh, he is calling on Jesus to do things for them. Probably the most well-known to us is the little statement, the Aramaic word Maranatha, which means our Lord come or O Lord come. Reference to Jesus, Jesus come back. We're waiting for you. So that's a prayer, however you might construe it. Uh, it's a request to Jesus. So when you see all those examples, I think they are consistent with the fact that Jesus receives worship in the Gospels and in Revelation. And that's important because there are times where people, like Peter, refuses worship. Don't worship me, I'm just a man. Jesus never does that. Or the angels will say, don't worship me, worship God. In Revelation, they rebuke John a couple of times for trying to worship angels. And they say, no, we're angels, we're servants. You worship God. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus receives worship, uh, with the possible exception, by the way, of the rich young ruler who Jesus kind of says, hey, quit talking so nice about me uh, in uh, Matthew 19. One of the reasons, though, I think... All of this is significant. And I, I want to put this thought in your mind as you think more about this topic, whether Jesus should be addressed in prayer. The New Testament applies Jehovah language to Jesus. So the, the language that in the Old Testament is about the one true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, is then applied to Jesus because Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is not a lesser God. He is not a demigod. He is Jehovah God. And so when he is addressed... He can be addressed the way Jehovah God is addressed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And especially, I would call your attention, we don't have time for it this morning, to Hebrews chapter 1. And the, the prophecies that are applied to the Son, that if you read the prophecies in their original context, are Jehovah prophecies. And he says, this is how the Son is addressed. So, I get through all of that and I say, well, you have some references, you have some examples uh, you have some quotations that indicate to me a prayer to Jesus is not problematic. I don't think I can make a case that praying to Jesus is wrong. But I need to add this. Having said all of that, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he does not say pray to me. Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father. And he reveals the Father to us. And he says, this is how you need to pray. Our Father in heaven. And he talks about the Father. In fact, that's, that's one of Jesus' favorite expressions to talk about God. Is you need to think of God as your Father, God as my Father, and you need to talk to God as a Father. In fact, you should expect blessing from him because what father would give his son a serpent if he asked for fish? Fathers are going to be good to their sons, and your Father is going to be good to you. So if Jesus teaches us to think of God as Father and address God as Father and pray to God as Father, that's what we need to do. So praying to Jesus, to me, is much more the exception than the rule. The rule is we pray to God as Father. The exception is there might be some circumstances where we feel like that is important or is something that we should do, but it's only because we understand and practice the rule of addressing God as Father. So that's how I would answer, uh, can we pray to Jesus? Third question, does God change his mind? 
is a hard question. The reason it's hard is because there are two different sets of passages in Scripture. And I want to show you, I want to show you one set of passages that's going to get you leaning one way, and then I'm going to pull it out of the way and go to the other set, which is going to lean you the other way. And then we'll try to make sense of the two directions. So, again, take notes if you uh, have the opportunity here, because there's a lot here that we're not going to be able to get into uh, just directly reading. All right, so uh, Numbers 23, 19. We read this passage earlier, and we're still not done with Balaam yet, even after we read this one. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. I also think it's interesting that he seems to equate lying and changing his mind. Those seem to be the same. But he's saying God is not a man, so he doesn't change his mind. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, 29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. By the way, earlier in the chapter, God says he regrets that he made Saul king. So we'll talk about that in a second. But he's not a man that he should have regret. So that would be a human thing, according to Samuel here. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Uh, James 1.17 talks about God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. All right, so does God change his mind? No, no. These passages say no, that God would not do that, that that's something men do. All right, so you're leaning that way yet? All right, well, let's go to the other side. Genesis 6.6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, which, by the way, he then sends the flood and destroys man. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So did God change his mind about Saul, about the earth, about people? Especially, is he a man that he has regret? It's pretty obvious. He says specifically that he has regret. So what do we do with all of this? Uh, does God change his mind? First of all, I will just say that a lot of these expressions about God are what we call anthropomorphisms, which is applying human attributes to God. So when God explains himself, I mean, we can't understand God because we are nothing like God. We are people. We have uh, finite limitations. So when God says that he regrets something or changes his mind about something, we're going to lose something in the translation there. How that works with God, how it works with an infinite knowledge and an infinite power and a plan that's far beyond. You know, here we are, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next week, and we, we might change our mind, you know, during the five or ten times during the course of the day. That's not God, but that's what we understand. That's our experience. So there's going to be something lost there. I would also point out that God seems to remain flexible for a reason. It's so that he can respond to man. I've been reading this week in Jonah. And in Jonah, God sends Jonah to say, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then the Ninevites repent and there is no overthrow of Nineveh, right? Well, what happened? I thought God said 40 days. 40 days pass, nothing happens. Is God a liar? Did God change his mind? God says, no, I, I want the people of Nineveh to repent. And so if I need to change and not destroy them because they finally repent, that's good. I haven't changed anything. I have always wanted them to repent. It's just now I finally got it to work. So God remains flexible. And the classic text in this is Jeremiah 18, which if we had time, we would read through. It's a beautiful text where God sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house and he, he watches the potter work on a pot. And then something messes up with the pot. And the potter makes it into something different. And he says, look, Judah, this is me. 
I'm sitting there working on you. If you do this, I can make you into this. If you do this, I can make you into this. I can change based on what you give me to accomplish my purposes. I think it's an awesome thing that God is able to take whatever mankind gives him and fashion it into his purpose. That, to me, shows the power of God far more than if God just had to have it his way and force us to submit. Instead, God responds to man. And so in that way, it might look like he's changing his mind. But again, that's just our perspective of God. The other thing I would say is that a lot of these passages, especially like these about regret, are expressions of God's emotion instead of God's will. So God can be grieved by something that goes on in the earth, right? God can be upset. And yet that doesn't change what God wants or what God's going to do necessarily. God can feel sadness, but that doesn't mean that something fundamental has shifted. So I would just answer this question in this way. Does God feel emotions about the state of his creation? Yes. Does God adjust to the circumstances of the world in order to accomplish his will? Yes. But does God change his mind and his purpose? Does God grow? You know, he used to think this and now he thinks this. No, I don't believe that about God. So in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, which is a typical politician answer to a question like that. All right, uh, fourth question. Can you explain providence with Scripture? Does God set up situations? I want you to go with me to Matthew 5. <clears throat> Matthew 5. Providence is not a biblical term. That is our way of describing something that the Bible teaches about how God provides. And the focus of the term providence is on how God provides through natural means as opposed to miraculous means, or at least not clearly miraculous means. Uh, so how does God do his will and how does he deal with everyday uh, things that we deal with? So uh, a couple of texts here, Matthew 5 and verse 45. It says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I want you to notice that it says specifically that God makes the sun rise and God sends the rain. Turn the page to Matthew 6. In Matthew 6 and verse 26, it says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then in verse 30, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I want you to notice in Jesus' language, God is directly doing these things. God is sending rain. God is sending sun. God is feeding. God is clothing. God is doing it. So how does that work? It does not work through miraculous means. God works through natural things to make all these things happen. And I think that's an understood part of what Jesus is teaching. So when you ask, uh, can you explain providence with Scripture? I would go here and say, look, God is taking care of his world. He is providing. He provides for the animals. He provides for the flowers and the plants. He provides for the people. In fact, Jesus says if he provides for all the other parts of creation, he's definitely going to provide for you. But I suspect a better way for us to understand providence is by examples. Looking at people in the Bible and how God provided for them. So God is with Joseph and God takes care of Joseph. But there are very few miracles in the story of Joseph. In fact, I would call one thing a miracle and that is Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. The rest of it is just sort of natural circumstances. 
the famine. How did the famine happen? I don't see the famine as miraculous. Even when Joseph works hard and gains the confidence of Potiphar and the confidence of Pharaoh, I don't see those as miraculous things. It is simply God with Joseph, helping Joseph, giving him the words of the author are giving him favor in the sight of different people that he's working with. God is with Nehemiah, no miracles. God is with Esther, no miracles. God is with Ruth, no miracles. I would say that in each of those examples, he cares for them providentially. And then even a little beyond that, not just take care of them, but sometimes do awesome things through them. And there's a bigger plan that comes into focus when you zoom out a little bit. Uh, Like in the story of Ruth, and then Ruth becomes a part of the line of David, who is ultimately a part of the line of Christ. She may have never known that, but you zoom out a little bit and you say, wow, God taking care of Ruth and Naomi leads down a long line toward a blessing for us. The problem with providence, the difficulty is that it is always subject to interpretation. And that's tough. We are limited in what our knowledge of God is and how God works in our time. So it's really hard to say confidently God is doing something. Uh, That was God behind it. And I have noticed, particularly among my brethren, I have noticed there's kind of a reluctance to say too much about what God's doing. I think that's probably a response to uh, people who attribute every small thing in their lives to God. And that seems like a little much. You know, I got this parking spot because God's smiling on me today and that kind of thing. Um, I would say this. This is just my opinion, so you can discard it without any, any penalty here. But my opinion is that since God says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, it seems to me we should assume that God is responsible when good things happen in our lives. That's the assumption we work with. Now, it may be that we find that wasn't as good as we expected it to be, or you know, there was something else in mind there, but I think that should be our default response. We thank God, we see God behind good in our lives, knowing that it doesn't have to be miraculous to be good. All right, uh, fourth, uh, what are we on? Fifth question. Uh, Was Balaam wrong to ask for the same thing repeatedly? Let's go to Numbers 22. Numbers 22. feel like I'm starting to slow down. i got to pick back up. All right. Numbers 22. So uh, Balaam is the prophet who is asked by Balak to come curse the people, uh, the people of Israel, as they're coming through toward the land of Canaan. Balaam at first asks God whether he can go and curse the people. Uh, this is, I'm going to read Numbers 22. I'm going to start at verse 9. It says, And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, is sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, for it covers the face of the earth. Uh, now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So they come back with more. And down in verse 18, But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. All right, so that, that part where we, he goes back to God and God says, Okay, fine, go with them. Uh, The question is, is Balaam wrong here to ask for the same thing repeatedly? And the reason, uh, the the person who's asking the question, they're asking this because there there are a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about asking God with persistence. Uh, So you've got Matthew 7, ask and seek and knock. You've got Luke 11 with the man 
who has a friend at midnight who won't leave him alone because of his persistence. You got the, the widow in Luke 18 who won't leave the judge alone. And so Jesus teaches persistence in prayer through those things. So is that not what Balaam's doing? Going back and, and asking God again and again to see uh, if God would let him go do this. Well, I don't think that Balaam's requests here are innocent or sincere for a couple of reasons. First of all, Balaam is known, he becomes kind of a byword because of his greed. Uh, so this is 2 Peter 2.15. Uh, they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Uh, and Jude has the same point, the, the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Uh, so Balaam becomes sort of the guy who is willing to sell his gifts, his prophetic gifts, his spiritual relationship for money. So if that's the case, then maybe there's something else going on besides uh, just Balaam being sincerely curious about God's will. The second reason I think Balaam was not in a good frame of mind here is that God is angry when he goes. We know God's angry because he puts an angel in the way, and this is when the donkey talks to him and all that, uh, because God is angry that Balaam went. It says specifically God was angry. His anger was kindled when he went. Uh, The other thing is that Balaam later advises Balak to make Israel compromise. The the reference here is Numbers 31.16, where uh, Balaam says, hey, if you get them to to commit sexual immorality and go into idolatry, that's how you get them. Balaam does that. So Balaam is not sincere here. I don't think his heart is in the right place. I I think Balaam was wrong, and I think that part of why he goes back to God is because he has some ulterior motives here, probably about greed and maybe even about uh, trying to advance himself through Balak. I would say this, though. It's one thing to know God's answer and just know God said no and say, I don't like that. I'm going to keep asking. It's another thing to say, I don't know what God wants. I'm going to keep praying and asking and seeking. Those are two different directions to me. One of those is sincere. The other is about rebellion. I think Balaam fits in the rebellion category. All right, uh, number six. Uh, How do we reconcile Babel with uh, the statement that God is not the author of confusion? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14 here. 1 Corinthians 14. All right, so uh, there are two passages here that seem to contradict. And so I want to read one of them, and I want to put one of them on the board. Uh, This is Genesis 11.9. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So you've got confusion there. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to read about confusion. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14.31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. So, uh, and your version might have God is not the author of confusion, which is what the the King James uh, says. uh, But mine says something like God is not a God of confusion. So I think what we have here is two passages that have two different points, two different uh, intentions. So the point of 1 Corinthians 14 is that God will not say contradictory things. God doesn't contradict himself. Or if you're talking about a disorder, confusion, as some translations have it, then God doesn't want chaos in worship. That's not from God. The idea of chaos is not God's, God's not the author of that. The point in Babel, this passage where the Lord confused the language, is that God is disappointed with the people's choices. And so he cuts off certain possibilities from the people. And he says, I'm going to confuse you so that you go in a direction that you need to go in. So what I think uh, is happening here is I think you have just two different intentions of the author. So sum all that up. 
Just because sometimes we're confused does not mean that God has done that and that God is the, the source of our confusion. We can sometimes be confused by God and God's word, but what 1 Corinthians 14 assures us is that we can still know that God's will for us is good and consistent. That confusion doesn't come from him, it comes from us. So in this text, uh, God does that for a reason, but God is not just confusing us to confuse us. Uh, God has a will and he has revealed it in a way that we can understand. All right, uh, number seven, last question here. Uh, When did the law of Moses end and the Christian era begin? I hope you understand. I've tried to phrase this question right, uh, but I, I think... There's a little awkwardness in the way you understand it. What we're getting at is there was a period of time when God expected people who wanted to serve him to keep the law of Moses. And then there is a transition into the time in which we live where God expects all people to respond to Jesus in faith. And so there is a difference in those two eras. There is a difference in what was done before Jesus and what is done after Jesus. So this question asks, when specifically does that happen? And as you read the New Testament, that becomes important, especially in the Gospels, because you begin to ask the question, well, who is addressed in, say, the Sermon on the Mount? Is the Sermon on the Mount for disciples of Jesus? Is it for them? Is it correcting the law for a little while? Or is it somewhere in between? So I'm just going to cut to the chase on this one because I have two minutes. Uh, But I would say I believe there are three possibilities And I have a really hard time choosing between the possibilities. So I'll just put them on the board and the reason why, the passage why I would say each one. And uh, and then give you a conclusion that's uh, a little mealy mouth because I'm not entirely sure. All right. Uh, So it is possible to say that that transition from law of Moses to, to the Christian era, law of Christ, however you want to frame that, happens at John the Baptist. Uh, So this is Jesus in Luke 16, 16. Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So remember, John comes preaching about the coming kingdom. He's the herald in the wilderness. And so this statement would seem to say that there is a transition that begins with John when a new message begins to be preached. All right? Well, that all sounds good. Uh, There is also the possibility that when this transition occurs is at the cross, when Jesus dies... Uh, This would be the logic that comes from uh, Hebrews and and some places in Galatians uh, where a will is involved. The death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So that the logic here would be after Jesus' death, uh, then this sort of this will of his is ratified and uh, a transition occurs then. Then there is also the possibility that Pentecost is the time when that happens. So Pentecost is, is the feast that happens 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. They're waiting, and uh, so then uh, the Spirit comes upon them. Uh, this is Luke 24. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. When does that happen? It begins on Pentecost. And uh, so they begin to preach, and for the first time on Pentecost, you have people being baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. All right. So there's your possibilities. Uh, I don't think we have an unambiguous answer. When you look at Jesus' teaching, Jesus seems to challenge some parts of the law. He seems to expand on some parts of the law. He seems to do away with some parts of the law. But he also seems to be hesitant to do a worldwide mission work while he's here. That doesn't happen until after Pentecost, significantly after Pentecost, actually. So 
there's a transition, but when exactly it occurs is not easy to pin down. So I just want to say a couple of things. First, I'm thankful we don't live in that time, so we don't have to like figure it all out. It's okay. You know, we're obviously past all of this, and we live in a time where we know what's expected of us. Uh, I also want to say, it's important for me to say that we can safely take Jesus' teaching as our guide to pleasing God. That whatever Jesus says, we know we follow that, and we please and honor God. That we are followers of Jesus, we're baptized in the name of Jesus, and so when Jesus teaches something, that's something we can take to the bank. But beyond that, I think this is the best I can do to say here are some possibilities, and you may need to make those decisions yourself. All right, thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate you guys following me through all of this, and uh, we'll be dismissed for our classes.